So um, the famous French philosopher, Denis Diderot, he lived nearly his entire life in poverty. Uh, but that all changed in 1765. Diderot was uh, 52 years old, and his daughter was about to be married, but he could not afford to provide a dowry. And, you know, back in the day, you would have to provide a dowry so that your daughter could get married. Uh, despite his lack of wealth, his name was well known because he was the co-founder and writer of one of the most comprehensive encyclopedias of all time. So we're already like in past encyclopedias. We're, we've Google now. But if you guys remember back in the day when, you know, the salesman would come or whatever, or you'd get a, your, some of your parents might have had a bunch of encyclopedia Britannicas or World Book. I had a World Book. And um, it just, you know, it's just a bunch of knowledge, right? And uh, Diderot, we have Diderot to thank for that. Uh, so when Catherine the Great, the Empress of Russia, heard of Diderot's financial troubles, she offered to buy his entire library for him, from him for a uh, thousand pounds, which in today's time would be roughly $50,000. Um, well, that was actually a f several years ago, so now it's probably like $100,000 because of inflation. But it's a lot of money, basically. So uh, shortly after this sale, this lucky sale, Diderot was rich, right, out of nowhere. He was poor, couldn't afford to marry his daughter off. Now he's rich, so he buys this new scarlet robe. So now he's a poor guy, but he has a scarlet robe and, you know, a bunch of money. And the robe was so beautiful that when he put it on, he immediately realized that everything else he owned was like trash, right, because <laughs> he was poor. And so he got this scarlet robe, and all of a sudden, everything else he owned looked really shabby. So, in his words, there was no more coordination, no more unity, no more beauty between his robe and the rest of his items. So he replaced his old rug with a new one from Damascus. He bought beautiful sculptures. He bought a new kitchen table. He bought a new mirror to place above his mantle. And his straw chair was relegated, this is in quotes, his straw chair was relegated to the antechamber by a leather chair, a new leather chair. And his spending basically went out of control. And that's why today, I don't know if you guys have ever heard this, but that's called the Diderot effect. If you buy a thing, and then you have to buy a bunch of other things because you bought this one new thing. Like you get a car and then you got to buy a bunch of stuff for your new car or you get a TV and then you're like, oh, the stand is trash. And then you buy a new stand and then you're like, oh, I need new speakers. And you just keep buying stuff. This is known as the Diderot effect. And we all feel this pressure. We can feel this pressure where you buy one new thing and you feel like you have to buy a bunch of new things for that new thing or like you're going on vacation and you're like, oh, well, I need some new outfits or I need this or I need that, I need new luggage. And then it just can get out of control. Now, I'm sure if I asked any of you, whether you're a believer or not, if that's what you wanted your whole life to be about, you would answer no. That's not what I want my life to be about. That's not what I want the purpose and meaning of my life to be, just that I'm buying stuff because I bought other stuff. You know, nobody would want that. <clears throat> Jean-Jacques uh, Rousseau, there's a bunch of French guys, <laughs> but um, he's also from the 18th century. He said this uh, regarding this. He said, since these conveniences, by becoming habitual, had almost entirely ceased to be enjoyable. 
and at the same time degenerated into true needs, it became much more cruel to be deprived of them than to possess them was sweet, and men were unhappy to lose them without being happy to possess them. In other words, it was more bad to not have the stuff that you wanted than it was good to have the stuff that you wanted. Do you ever feel like that? Like something that you have, it's great for like a second. You know, you get a new phone, you get a new laptop, a new house, a new car, you know, a new kid. It's great for a little bit, right? It's at the beginning, it's just like, wow, this is amazing. And then after a little bit, you're kind of like, oh, you know, I don't know. It's, <laughs> it's worse to not have the things that I want than it is to have these things that I once said that I wanted. And that's kind of life, right? That's, that's kind of how the American life is, is built. So how do we get out of that? Right? How do we not live our lives just for that and instead live for something else? Well, the Bible tells us that's not the kind of life that you want to be on that hamster wheel running for new stuff all the time. The Bible tells us we should live by faith. We should live our lives by faith in God. And what we're going to talk about this morning is what does that mean to live by faith? What exactly does that look like, and how can we step into such a life? Uh, that's what we're going to address this morning in Scripture. And so if you guys have your Bibles, can you open them up with me to the book of Hebrews? Amen. Hebrews, he gets it. Hebrews 11, uh, verse 1. And um, we're going to read all the way through verse 16, but um, we'll kind of take it a piece at a time. So this is Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1. This is God's word. And it says, Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For by it, the people of old received their commendation. By faith, we understand that the universe was created by the word of God so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. And we'll pause right there for a second. So I'm going to give three points this morning. The first point is this. Living by faith is trusting that, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, to, so a lot of times we'll say that word trusting, but what does that really mean? So I'm going to put in this little substitute. So living by faith is trusting or acting as if. Living by faith is acting as if a pre-existent, all-powerful God exists and we can know him through his word. Living by faith is trusting or acting as if a pre-existent, all-powerful God exists and we can know him through his word. Now, I know it's kind of wordy. If you're taking notes, I'll give you a second. <laughs> Living by faith is acting as if a pre-existent, all-powerful God exists, and we can know him through his word. So just to look at the text. Um, so in verse 1, he says, Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. It's the conviction of God's promises <clears throat> and the fact that Essentially, Jesus, uh, many of them have been fulfilled in Jesus, which is what the author of Hebrews has gone through in the first, you know, 10 chapters, and we'll go over that a little bit later. 
So this is how uh, the people of old, essentially, they were looking to God that he was going to answer his promises. And that's how they received their, it says, their commendation. And then verse 3, it says, by faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God. Now, sometimes we read something in the Bible and it just kind of goes over your head, right? Oh, yeah, the universe was created by the word of God. That's not crazy. Like, that's, that's regular. That's a normal statement. But think about that for a second. First, that God created everything out of nothing. You know, we call it ex nihilo creation. Out of nothing, God created everything. From our little planet, this planet Earth, which is like 3,900 miles across, to the moon, which is 240,000 miles away, to Mars, which is 139 million miles away, to Alpha Centauri, the next closest star, which is 4.24 light years away, a light year is the distance that light travels in a year, to our little galaxy, our galaxy, the Milky Way, of 100 billion planets, 100 billion stars, over 100,000 light years across from end to end, to the two trillion galaxies that exist in the observable universe, God created all of that out of nothing. So that's part of what the author of Hebrews is saying. And he's also saying he created that by his word. So that what was seen was not made out of things that are visible. It wasn't, he didn't take stuff, God didn't take stuff that already existed to create the universe. He created it out of things that were not visible. It means things that didn't exist is his point. From his word. Isn't that incredible? The emphasis on the power of God's word is seen throughout the Bible, right? Genesis 1. God speaks, let there be light, and there's light. God creates everything from his word. John 1, in the beginning was a word, the word was with God, and the word was God. Talking about Jesus, right, the Logos. <clears throat> the book of Hebrews begins with this idea as well. Hebrews 1 talks about, yeah, in the, old, in the olden days, I'm paraphrasing, but in the olden days, God spoke through his prophets, but in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whose words we have in the Bible. Why is it important that we understand this? Well, we live in a world that is designed to distract us from the most important realities of life. That's the world that we live in. That's the way the world is. I was uh, recently reading this book called uh, Stolen Focus. Why you can't pay attention and how to think deeply again. So uh, in it, it cites this study by a professor from UCI who observed how long an average adult working in an office stays on one task. So if you work in an office, you know, you're an average adult, how long do you think the average adult stays on one task? What do you guys think? I hear some like mumbling, 10 minutes, something like that, 30 minutes, so you guys are great workers. That's why you say that, right? Because the real answer is three minutes. Three minutes. Yes, no way. That's the response I wanted. <laughs> Another study about college students. How long do you think college students stay on one task? Well, if it's three minutes. <clears throat> if the first one was three minutes, it's got to be less, right? 65 seconds on average, and the median time, which might be more indicative of, you know, 
what the the real average is because average obviously takes everything and mashes it together. The median time was 19 seconds to stay on one task. It's crazy. So this guy's writing this book and he looks at all this info and he goes and he he talks to this guy named Raw Baumeister. He's based in the University of Queensland in Australia. This guy's like, he wrote a book called Willpower. So this is like the foremost expert on focus, right? And he goes to him and he's like, I can't focus. Like, I, what, are, what are we doing in society? Like, what's going on today? I can't focus. And then the dude is like, he's like in his 60s. He wrote this book called Will, Willpower. He's all about focus. And he tells him, I can't focus. And then do you know what the guy said back to him? He was like, me neither. <laughs> that was basically his answer. He said, yeah, me too. Like, you know, I find myself playing games on my phone. That's what the foremost <laughs> expert on willpower told him when he was trying to write this book. He's like, yeah, you know, sometimes, like, work's hard. I just like playing games on my phone. What the heck? Like, that's what's going on in the world today. No wonder it's so hard to find, you know, half an hour to spend, like, sitting at the feet of God and, like, reading the word right, and praying. Sometimes we just think, ugh, that's so, like, that's so, you know, 1900s. Or so, like, you know, that's, like, that's what Puritans do. We don't do that now. You know, I listen to a Bible podcast, 3X, you know, while I'm jogging. Like, that's what we need to do. Please don't do that. <laughs> you cannot absorb anything, right? You got to sit at the feet of God and understand that the God who created the world out of nothing did it by his word. Living by faith. Trusting, acting as if an omnipotent creator God exists and you can know him through his word. Here's point two. Living by faith is trusting that or acting as if God's approval is the ultimate reward. God's approval is the ultimate reward. Now, let's read on. I want to read on here in verse 4. So verse 4, it says, By faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous, God commending him by accepting his gifts. And through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. Verse 5, By faith, Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death, and he was not found because God had taken him. Now, before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God. Verse 6, and without faith, it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. Verse 7, by faith, Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear, constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this, he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. So right here, there's uh, three people mentioned. There's Abel, there's Enoch, and there's Noah, right? Now, Abel, of course, Genesis 4, Cain and Abel. Abel is kind of the good son. Cain is the bad son. Abel offers a sacrifice of uh, animals. He was in charge of the flock. Cain offers a sacrifice from the ground. The Bible tells us Abel offered the best of his flock, and Cain offered something. We don't, it doesn't really say he offered some kind of offering from the ground. And, of course, Cain gets jealous because Abel's offering is accepted, and then Cain murders Abel. Uh, the first murder, the first death in the Bible. And it says, Abel was commended 
because he offered his offering by faith. Because, and it's not entirely clear from the Bible, from Hebrews or from Genesis, why Abel was commended and Cain was not. But we can speculate animals needed to be sacrificed. The blood had to be shed for the forgiveness of sins. That's probably one reason. But another reason of their heart seems to be that Cain cared more about his offering than he did about what God said about it. Right? Because he was in charge of the ground. You know, he was a gardener, essentially. And so he cared more about, like, God, why don't you care about my offering as much as Abel's, who was in charge of the flock? It seems like Abel didn't care about that so much. He just offered the best of whatever he was doing, and he listened to God. And that's why Abel was commended. And Cain, of course, you know, becomes the first murderer. Then it mentions Enoch. Now, Enoch, we don't really know that much about Enoch. There's like four verses about Enoch in the Bible. And the only main verse that talks about his life is Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. That's it. And then there's another verse that said he walked with God. That was basically the main thing about Enoch. Oh, the main thing about Enoch is that he didn't die. Okay, that's the main thing. He just, God took him away. He didn't see death. Okay, and we'll come back to that in a bit. Now, Noah, of course, built the ark. Now, think about Noah for a second. He's living in a time where it says the intentions of man were all evil all the time. Nobody thinks Noah makes sense. He just believes God. God tells him there's going to be a flood. He believes him. He built an ark. And because he trusted God, because he believed that God approving of him, that God commending him was the only thing that really mattered, even though everybody else in the planet, literally, I mean, everybody else on the planet, except for his family, but then maybe his family too, like, you know, who knows? They're probably like, dude, why we got to get in this boat? You know, but they did end up doing it. But everybody was against him. Living by faith is trusting or acting as if God's commendation, God's approval is the only one that matters. Now, I'm going to put this another way. Living by faith is pursuing obedience rather than an outcome. It is pursuing obedience rather than an outcome. And here's the evidence of that from the text. Why is Abel and Enoch put right next to each other? It seems kind of random, right? If you could pick anybody from the Bible, because Noah's also in here, and then Abraham is also in here. Why is Abel and Enoch, are they like, when you think about the Bible, you're like, oh, dude, Enoch, he's the one, right? Like, he is the most faithful guy I could think of from the, like, probably not, right? What are the two things that Abel and Enoch are known for? Abel is the first person to ever die, and Enoch is the first person to ever not die. So basically, their lives, from an earthly perspective, had opposite outcomes, right? One person was murdered, and the other person just didn't die at all. And yet, here they are commended side by side for their faith. See, the reason that matters is, like, we're so focused. Like, we think a choice is validated by how it turns out, right? When you think about, should I take this job or that job, or should I date this person or that person, or you know, should I go here or there? 
how do you think it's, it's the right one or the wrong one? Probably you'll think, well, we'll see in like three months. Or we'll see in like six months. If I love this job, then it was the right decision. If I hate this job, it was the wrong decision. You know, if I end up marrying this person, it was the right decision. If, I, you know, if we break up, it was the wrong decision. Right, so the outcome is what we're generally focused on rather than the obedience. I read this story in a, uh, from, from Trevor Wax, who wrote this book called This Is Our Time. So he, told, he tells this story about Thanksgiving, Thanksgiving 2015. And he's at his sister's place, and his sister had just bought a new house. And it was, like, really hard. You know, she, for years, her husband pursued a degree in medicine, so he was working, like, 80-hour weeks. She was, like, taking care of the kids. She had three kids. And for a long time, things were just a struggle all the time, right? And then finally, they wanted to settle down. So finally, they, you know, saved enough money. They, like, bought this house. So they were super happy that they had bought this house. And then this was the first time they had their whole family over. So the grandparents came over, right? All the kids came over. Everybody's running around. It's Thanksgiving. They're decorated. They're ready for Christmas. Right? They're just, and it, he just tells this story about how it was so great. Everybody had a great time. It was, like, wonderful. And then, uh, you know, the next morning, basically, they wake up, and there's, like, smoke. Okay, so then they panic, get everybody out of the house. And what happened was there was a small uh, gas leak, which led to a small explosion, which led to their house burning down. Okay, so they're outside with everybody, and they're watching their house burn down. Now, that's, I mean, thankfully nobody was hurt, but that's pretty devastating, right, to just stand there while this symbol of everything that they suffered for, basically, is just like burning down in front of them. He said it was like a slow, painful death. You stand there and watch your house burn down for hours, and you can't do anything to stop it. So there's this... Um, quote from the book, uh, so Brandon, he acknowledges that before the fire, he charted his life according to the American dream. Do we have the, do we have that quote? So he said this, and it's, it's probably going to be a little lengthy here, piece by piece, but he said this in response to the fire. He said, I used to think of my life as an upward line from A to B, he says. My B was the house, a car, a good job, money for retirement. B is always better and always more. That's why at first it did feel like we were going backwards, like we'd lost a year or more, Tiffany says. That's Brandon's wife. But after the fire, Brandon says, I realize that B is not more money. B is Christ-likeness. It's holiness. The top of the ladder is not a house or money or job security, but God doing everything he can to make me more like Jesus. He cares more about my heart than he does my house. We always said the most important thing in our life is our relationship with God, says Brandon. But deep down, you still think B is the bigger house, the better job, the bank account, your independence. Life is all about B, and God is along for the ride. The fire changed all that. B is different now. The latter is about becoming more like Jesus. Living by faith means living for faithfulness. In truth, the parameters of our decision-making, <coughs> why you do something, is far more important than the results of your decisions. 
If you can say with a clean conscience, I'm making this decision in faith as I pursue obedience to God. That is far more important than how it turns out in the end. Living my faith is trusting that there is an omnipotent creator God and you know him by his word. Living by faith is trusting that the pursuit of obedience matters more than the pursuit of a particular outcome. Here's a third point. Living by faith is trusting or acting as if uh, there's a better home than this world. There's a better home in store for you than the one this world has to offer. So I want to read the rest of this passage. In verse 8, it says, By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. Verse 9, by faith he went to live in the land of promise as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. Verse 11, by faith Sarah herself received power to conceive even when she was past the age, since she considered him faithful who had promised. Therefore from one man and him as good as dead were born descendants as many as the stars of heaven and as many as the innumerable grains of sand by the seashore. Verse 13, these all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of the land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country, that is, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. See, these people, they didn't just live in faith, they died in faith. To die in faith, you have to be able to still be looking forward to something when you're dying. That's the only way, right? If, if whatever you're looking forward to can be accomplished in this life, right? If, if the dream is to, like, make a certain amount of money or to live a certain place or have a certain job, right, then if you ever get that, then that's it, right? You can't have more faith and hope. There's nothing forward for you. That's the end of the line. To die in faith, at the point of your death or at the end of your life for someone like Enoch, at the end, you still have to be looking forward to something. What's crazy about this passage about faith is that what the author of Hebrews says is none of these people received what they were promised in their life. It says Abraham lived in tents his whole life. He rented for his whole life, right? He never owned Never had a mortgage, right? Just like living, going a tent to tent, like wandering around with his kids, his family. You know, one commentator said about the life of Abraham that all that was left of him after he died in the land was his family and memorials, basically these stone monuments that he made to God because every time something, God would do something and prove his faithfulness, he would, you know, put these stones up. Like, ah, you know. 
God gave me a well. You know, like whatever, right? That's what it would do. You know, he resolved this disagreement, you know, that we had. Like, and then he would just put these stones up. And once Abraham was gone, that's all that was left of him. Just these memorials to God. Sarah was barren. She conceived at the age of 90 by faith. Living by faith means never trying to make this place our permanent home. Like, during the pandemic, I would, um, you know, it's like everything shut down. At the beginning, you know, everything shut down. I'm home, right? Like, church is on pause. I mean, we're doing remote, but it's like nobody's there. You know, I'm just in front of a camera and stuff like that. So, like, I got bored, you know, <laughs> like, all the ministries shut down. Like, I'm with my kids all day, like, doing school from home, and that was just a nightmare. And I want to, you know, decompress, and I don't know. I'm not really into that much. Like, I would love to have gone to play basketball or something because I love that. But, you know, nobody was doing that, so I'm just at home. And then you're at home so much, I started – like, just looking at, like, Zillow. You ever do that? I'm just on Zillow. I'm on my phone. And I'm like, Zillow or Redfin. I'm just, like, scrolling through. Yeah, it's great to get that house. You know, just, like, looking at it. How many bedrooms? It's like, I can't afford any of these houses. But who cares? You know, just looking at ah, I don't like that. I don't like that backyard. You know, and I'm just scrolling through, looking at stuff, like, imagining in my head. Oh, this would be cool to, you know, put a little, put a little pool in there. <laughs> like, do this, do that. It, it's weird. But that just became a thing that I did, and, you know, praise God that the biblical reality would set in, and I would remember, I mean, there's no perfect home. There's no perfect car. There's no perfect laptop or pair of jeans or shoes or perfect person, perfect leader, perfect parent or spouse or child or friend or church. There is no perfect. The home that your heart longs for is not this one. It's not the one that's here. Your house and your family and your vision and your work will always here remain unfinished. And that's a great thing to know. That's a great thing to know because then you can stop obsessing about it. You can stop thinking, oh, this has to be perfect and that has to be perfect the fullness of home still awaits us, will greet us one day. Jesus' final commendation when everything that we've endured in this life, all the sufferings, you'll, you'll know for sure that it wasn't for nothing. It wasn't without purpose. Every unknown good deed will be revealed and rewarded. Every injustice against you or against anyone will be made right. And because of the completed work of Jesus, every sin will be forgiven. Right? Every guilt, every shame, every pain, every hurt, every scar will be made well. And when that's where your heart is, you know, the Bible tells us, like, where your treasure is, that's, that's where your heart is, right? When you treasure that, when, when that's what you desire, when that's where you invest, when that's where you put all of your energy and your faith and your hope, then you start to bring that home here, that hope here, and we start to build that here. So very quickly, uh, before I close, I just want to 
give a couple general applications. The first thing I would say is, let go of the false hope of a perfect home. Just, just let go of that. Like, that's not something that's just going to happen, right? Like, you're not just going to, that, that's not just going to automatically phase out of your life, right? Much like the Diderot effect. It's just, it's in there. It finds a way to creep in. And then before you know it, that's all your life is about. You're just thinking about the next vacation. You're just planning, you know, for three, six months, right? You're thinking about like two years down the line, oh, I'm going to go to Europe, I'm going to go to Korea, right? It's going to be great. And that's just like what your whole life becomes about. And the thing is, when you're doing that, you just can't pay attention to what's happening right in front of you. You just can't. You just become blind to people's suffering. You just become blind to people's needs. You're still focused on that. You got to actively, like, to let go of that hope. And I'm not, look, I'm not saying, by the way, I'm not saying it's wrong to go on vacation. I'm not saying it's wrong to, like, have a phone or say, I got a phone, you know, I went on vacation. Like, you know, these aren't, the, these aren't like, terrible things. But that, that can't be, like, the heart of your hope. Right? And for it not to be, you have to have an ongoing, active confession and, like, renunciation of that kind of life. You just say, you know what, guys? I do feel like, man, this is becoming a little too important to me. Like, this is becoming my point B. This is becoming the thing that I care about, the thing that I think is my next step in life. Right? You got to be in a discipleship group, and you just got to, like, share honestly and just say, this, this is, and I don't want that. I want to be able to have all my faith, all my hope in Christ. And that is the second thing, right? Set your hope in Christ. Uh, a little bit after this, Hebrews 12. You don't have to turn there. I'm just going to read it. It says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. And the encouragement, so Hebrews, the book of Hebrews is all about how Jesus is better. He is superior. He's better than the prophets. He's better than the angels. He's better than Moses, better than Melchizedek, better than the old priesthood. He is a better power, a better faith, a better hope than anything that has ever been offered before And for some of us, saying, hey, let go of the false hope of a perfect home, that might be easy for you because right now you just feel like things are very far from perfect. Things aren't good. You know, things are tough. And if that is the case, let me just assure you that hoping Christ is better because Christ is better. He is superior. He knew what it was to be humbled, to be rejected, to be lonely, to be betrayed, to be weak, to be falsely accused, to love without being loved in return, to suffer, to die. And God the Father turned all of that, that pain and that loneliness and that betrayal that false accusation and conviction and that torture and his death, God turned all of that to good. In fact, the greatest good ever in human history 
came out of all of that pain. And I, I just, I'll close with this, but I heard this one pastor, he was talking about what it is to grow in holiness, you know, and, you know, we like to think it's the straight line, you know, kind of going up like that. Obviously, if you've been a Christian for any amount of time, you know that that's not the case. It's not kind of a straight trajectory up. It's like a weird, you know, it's up and down and it's all over the place. You feel like you're going backwards and forwards and up and it's just that's how it feels. And then he said, but there is this one aspect of Christianity, there is this one aspect of his relationship with God that has gone up just like this, in just a straight trajectory up. And what it is, is the feeling of utter dependence. It is knowing that unless my salvation is wholly dependent on Jesus, then there's no way I could ever be saved. Like, that's what grows over time, as you know. Because all your behaviors and the things you think and say, like, it goes up and down. I mean, there were parts of, there were times in my life where I was like, oh, you know, I'm doing a really good job. Like, I haven't, I haven't insulted anyone really badly, you know, in a couple years. And, like, I haven't put my foot in my mouth. And then, like, you'll have a bad streak. Oh, gosh, man. I just did it 10 times in a row. Like, that's, that's what happens. And then you feel like, oh, man, maybe I'm growing back. <laughs> like, I'm not, not being sanctified. That's what you think sometimes. But the, the thing that is true, has remained true, is that, man, what's grown in my heart is one, knowing that I could never, ever save myself because I'm so, like, pathetically weak and unrighteous. And the other thing is, man, God is so crazily faithful because he just keeps on forgiving and he just keeps on being, like, he keeps on keeping his promises. That's what God has for you, to know that he still loves you. He still hears you. And these guys, they're not <laughs> Abraham. He did some crazy, tried to sell out his wife, like, a couple times. You know, like, they, they, they weren't great. But they believed that God was faithful. And that's what grew over time. Trust that he still has, no matter what you've been through or what you're going through right now, he still has a home prepared for you to be with him forever. Fix your eyes on that truth. Let's pray together. God, we, uh, we thank you so much. We thank you that you are such an immeasurably faithful God. I mean, beyond what we can even fathom. We thank you that the sacrifice of Christ, because you are faithful to your promises, God, it is more than enough to cover over all of our sin, all of our pain, all of our shame, God, all of our hurt. And I know it doesn't, for many in this room, it may not feel like that sometimes. It may not feel like that right now. 
But I pray, God, that you would remind us that it is nevertheless true. I pray, God, that you would give us even the experience of your special grace as you comfort us. As you draw a life of faith out of us, God, as you save us from the foolishness and the monotony and the suffering of living for this world as if that's all there is, God. You have an infinitely better home prepared for us with you forever. God, would you allow us to actively renounce this world as home and to actively hope and trust in the one that you have for us, that we entrusted to you. We thank you, God. We love you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.